This Israel report is brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you're based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebueagency.com. The Israel Report for the latest news and insights with Anthony Reich. Anthony Reich, Bokertov Shavuotov, how are you? Bokertov Shavuotov, it's been wintry in Israel mm-hmm. and we've had a lot of rain over the past few days and the forecast says more rain um, for the coming week as well. Um, the rain comes in the form of torrential showers and then kind of a break. It's been very persistent and, and, and quite heavy at times. Um, and of course, our thoughts go to um, our soldiers who are out there somewhere um, in this bad weather. And of course, um, to the people who have been displaced from their homes, whether they be Israelis who are living temporarily outside of their homes because of the war. And of course, numerous uh, people living in Gaza, civilians in Gaza who've been pushed out of their homes, living in um, not good conditions at all. We've seen recently a report that the price of tents in Gaza has taken another step upward. People are needing to buy tents that are being donated by the international community. And the cost of the tent um, could be more than what was previously a monthly a month's worth of salary um, for people who worked um, in the government, uh, the, the, the Hamas uh, governing uh, area, um, people who were considered to be government workers um, in Gaza were earning less than the cost of one refugee tent. Hmm. That's the way that the economy is working in Gaza right now. And just another story away from the war zone, uh, which is a little bit of upliftment, um, is a story that comes from Luxembourg. Now, this time of year is very much Eurovision time of year, um, and most countries will be having, the primaries will be having their local uh, internal competitions in order to determine who will represent that country at the Eurovision, which will take place in March-April time. And in Luxembourg, the official representative is Tali Goleragant, and Tali is, in fact, an Israeli. His father, I understand, has gone to be a sheliach in Luxembourg. Ah. And she um, entered this competition alongside her all-Israel production team. And she has been chosen as Luxembourg's representative, representative act at the com- upcoming Eurovision competition. There has been a lot of controversy around Israel's participation. Some countries have already indicated that they do not want to participate in the Eurovision because of the fact that Israel will participate. But whether or not Israel participates, we have um, Tali, who will be representing Luxembourg, ironically. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Anthony, we, we're speaking quite a lot about the ICJ, so I don't want to focus on it. But if you can just give us a very, very short summation of your view, and then I really would love to hear what's happening in Khan Yunus. 
Mm. So, um, along with many people, I watched the judgment on Friday that was handed down at the ICJ. And one of the um, fascinating headlines that I saw that was actually in the Jerusalem Post said the following, ICJ bad mouth mm. Israel for 35 mm. minutes, then Israel wins. I, I love that um, I, because it, it was exactly right. Well, I'm not sure if I agree with either of those points, to be honest with you. First of all, I'm not sure that Israel really won. um, But what is clear to me is that what South Africa had requested lost. Um, And whether Israel came out as a winner as a result of that, I think remains to be seen. I'm a little bit more skeptical because I think that there was a clear kind of angle that was going to be quite critical of Israel coming out of the ICJ judgment. Um, I think also that, you know, where that says that, uh, is, that the ICJ badmouthed Israel for 35 minutes. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't positive and it was clear that the judges had chosen to adopt many of the arguments that were put forward by the South African case without giving much credence to Israel's argument that this was really a self-defense and self-preservation act rather than an act of genocide. Um, So it seems as if, though, one of the things that the ICJ was quite reluctant to talk about was this whole issue of intent, because for there to be genocide, there needs to be intent. And the whole discussion of intent, I'm sure, will take many, many months and years to sort out. Um, What they did say was it was plausible. They used this word plausible. It was plausible that um, there is a case to be answered. And, and therefore, they decided to go ahead with the case. They did say that Israel, uh, that South Africa had a case um, that could be presented, and what was being presented was plausible. And um, for me, um, there were two things really that came out of it. The first was which that the administrative order at the end didn't include an order to release the hostages, even though there was a mention of a demand to release the hostages. But when the votes were taken and the actual uh, instructions were issued, there was no instruction to release the hostages, which I thought was a real missed opportunity on the part of the judge of the ICJ. The second point that I wanted to make was that really um, the the, the administrative order really just reiterates the protocol, the the, uh, um, genocide protocol, which was quoted at at length um, and so there was really nothing new that was being imposed upon Israel other than this report that needed to be presented in a month's time and it was interesting that Israel's representative judge Aharon Barak didn't necessarily vote in favor or against all of the resolutions he 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 voted according to his conscience on each and every point. And I thought that that was a good tactic that he adopted, not to be entirely against everything that was being said by the ICJ, but to consider each point on its merits and where he felt that it needed to be supported and really just reiterated the genocide protocol, he supported it. And where he felt it needed to be objected to for whatever reason, he objected to it. Unlike the Ugandan judge who has really been castigated across the board, including by her government in Kampala, where they've said she doesn't represent our point of view at all because she really voted against all of the points. Um, But of course, it was an interesting little bit of theater that went on. And all that really came out of that at the end was business as usual. Whatever we were doing on the day before, we're continuing to do on the day after. Here for me is one of the most critical issues. The judge did quote at some length information that came out of UNRWA, UNRWA being the United Nation 
Works Relief Aid, United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. She quoted a lot of information and work that was being done by UNRWA, and for good reason, because UNRWA, like the International Court of Justice, is under the auspices of the United Nations. So all of that makes sense. However, in the hours and days that followed the judgment, UNRWA has effectively unraveled because um, it has been proven beyond any reasonable doubt that UNRWA workers were actively involved in the massacre on October the 7th. Uh, a number of 12 workers has been mentioned as being having been actively involved in the massacre that took place. But And so therefore, when I saw some Sky News um, interviews about this UNRWA, one guy said, well, UNRWA employs thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. 12 have been identified out of the entire workforce. It's a very, very small number. UNRWA moved immediately to re remove mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. It really is not representative and doesn't cast any doubt upon UNRWA, except that the main donors to UNRWA, including the United States and Germany and Italy and Australia and Canada and a number of other countries, have moved to say, we are removing our funding from UNRWA as a result of all of this. And I think what listeners need to understand is that it's really not about those 12 workers who were found to have been actively involved in the UNRWA, uh, um, uh, in the massacre that took place on October the 7th. The thing that was, uh, for me, the most critical thing is UNRWA's overall involvement mm. in everything mm. that had happened, including making their facilities available, including storing weapons, including allowing, uh, including UNRWA workers who have held hostages um, in the subsequent period, including Let's go back to 1950 when UNRWA began its operations. The actual, the actual, um, uh, the, the the main objective of UNRWA, as stated by their website, says that the agency um, is about. Uh, is is has a long-standing commitment, long-standing commitment to Palestinian refugees, and that it, it goes on to say that initially, when UNRWA began its activities, it was catering to the needs of about seven hundred and fifty thousand Palestinian refugees. Today, they cater for some five point nine million refugees who are eligible for UNRWA services. And what it says is that um, that it's dealing with people who's who were defined as persons whose normal place of residence was Palestine during the period from 1946 to 1948, which of course is not 5.9 million, just just for the record. But but my point here is that UNRWA as a, a, a as a, a relief agency for refugees is perpetuating the refugee issue. They have set out not to resolve the refugee issue, which is the way that most refugee organizations work. They have set out to perpetuate the problem. Mm. And there it lies the crux of the problem with UNRWA. It's really little about their involvement. Of well, there's no incentive for the them to ever really improve the situation because the, well, the on the contrary yeah on the contrary uh, the, the, they, they are perpetuating exactly mm. they are perpetuating the narrative that the refugees will be able to return back to israel 5.9 million of them who are under UNRWA services right now. So they are perpetuating a certain narrative. And so the fundamental, the fundamental pretext 
for the establishment of UNRWA in the first place is problematic and certainly serves a certain narrative. And the, the fact that, that UNRWA people have been involved in the October the 7th massacre comes as no surprise to me or anybody else. And in fact, it's just part of the same narrative, which is rotten from the core and from the top down. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, just a remarkable, remarkable thing. And uh, it's been spoken about for years and years. That's why it's uh, just fascinating that this is all coming to light. The world is going to look very different. The United Nations, the NGO world, really, uh, is going to look very different after this war. Let's talk about what is happening inside Gaza at the moment. Um, so, as you rightly pointed out earlier, and I know I took a little bit more time on that than I was planning to because we got invo- I got involved with UNRWA, but in Khan Yunus right now, or in Gaza rather, mm. and most of the focus really has been around Khan Yunus area. And Khan Yunus, by the way, was always a focus even from the very, very first days of the war. There was always statement that all the activity was going on in Khan Yunus, the tunnels of Khan Yunus, the hostages being held in Khan Yunus, the Hamas leadership um, taking uh, refuge in Khan Yunus, and now the Israeli army is reported to be on the verge of taking full control over Khan Yunus. So that is really where things are at right now. And this has been a remarkable operation over the last week because we've really seen uh, some of the most intensive fighting of the war has been reported from the last week in Khan Yunus. Um, and the IDF have made, done a very, very efficient and effective job to get into Khan Yunus. Once again, massive movement of civilians away from Khan Yunus as being directed by the IDF. Once again, no signs of genocide, just in inverted commas, Mm -hmm. because everybody's being moved away from that area to try to prevent civilian casualties because it would be dead easy for us to turn around and say, hang on a second, these people who are being labeled as civilians are living in a military facility. That's really what Khan Yunus is. This is, for all intents and purposes, a military facility, not only above the ground, but more importantly, below below the ground, and therefore is a justified and, and established potential target for military activity. And yet, the idea for moving all of those civilians away from the area of Khan Yunus to be able to get not only to the facilities above ground, but more importantly, to be able to get to the tunnels and everything that's happening below the ground, according to a report in the Washington Post, um, quite uh, strangely, sorry, not the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal is saying that something like between 20 and 40 percent of all Hamas tunnels have been destroyed or neutralized so far after 115 days of fighting. And it all goes to show how much more work is really required by the idea to get to those tunnels and to get um, get rid of that military facility that we see. Khan Yunus is a major area. And there will still be a lot of fighting and a lot of um, IDF um, activity and focus on the Khan Yunus area in the days and weeks to come until such time as there is a feeling that we can really get on top of um, what's happening there and neutralize the military capability that comes from Khan Yunus, not only in terms of rocket fire, but in terms of the ability to keep hostages and the ability to run any sort of military network from the tunnels under Khan Yunus. And that's where we leave it. Anthony Reich, thank you as always. That is the Israel Report. You can catch Anthony tomorrow morning at 7.45. That Israel Report was brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Hi, it's Barry Cohen from the Blue Agency. Israel is currently facing one of its biggest challenges ever. 
All of Klal Israel is praying for the safety of our soldiers and the return of the hostages. We hope and pray that our soldiers and security forces will prevail and that they will all return home speedily and triumphant. We hold the hands of our clients and friends who have children serving in Tzahal, who are protecting Israel and Jews around the world. May Hashem protect us all. Yeah.